Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 22 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. In this episode, you'll hear Part 2 of my conversation with Dr. Ian Tyndall, a cognitive behavioural psychologist at the University of Chichester, where he also runs the Functional Behavioural Science Laboratory. If you haven't heard Part 1, you can skip back to listen now, and I'll use Ian's words here to summarise it. It was really nice to be interviewed by the great Ross McIntosh as part of his excellent Wellbeing in the Workplace podcast series, People Soup, on my career to date, with stuff on stuttering, stammering, bouncing back from bad performance reviews, Galway, moving to Chichester, psychology and research. Feel free to share with anyone whom you think might appreciate it or benefit a bit from any aspect of it. And that little summary gives you an idea of the generosity and openness with which Ian spoke. In part two, we delve into Ian's research. We cover ostracism, smart brain training for kids and adults. And I'll just digress here a moment. Ian mentions the work of Dr. Brian Roche and Dr. Sarah Cassidy from Maynooth University. And I've had a look at their website at raiseyouriq.com. And I'm going to read out their mission. We aim to deliver the highest quality behavioural technologies to the public via the World Wide Web so that children and adults everywhere can benefit educationally from behaviour analytic teaching methods usually only delivered in a clinical setting. The training we deliver online will help every individual to reach their full intellectual potential and attain the life goals they have set for themselves. This is fabulous work with enormous potential, and it was also the subject of research by Dr Shane McLaughlin, who's getting his second piece soup shout-out in as many episodes as a future guest. And I'm hoping, Shane, that this was slightly less menacing than the first shout-out. In the remainder of part two, there's really such a breadth of content. Ian reflects on measures in contextual behavioural science, some research exploring the experience of homeless people in Milan, and their current work looking at the rise in sexually transmitted infection in the over-45s. Ian and his collaborators truly impact on many areas of society. He even makes reference to two films – There's something about Mary and the mask. And to top it all off, there's a cracking takeaway. People Soup is a community of people who are interested in behavioural science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioural science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, a first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People Soup where we aim to nourish the mind and flourish at work. In news and reviews, we were both really pleased that the British Stammering Association picked up the interview. They highlighted his experiences with stammering and stuttering, and how it hadn't prevented him from pursuing a career in lecturing. Another review from Rebecca Alegbo on Twitter. Rebecca said, listen to this on my way to work today. First day teaching in my first lecturer post. Perfect timing. Thank you for your openness, Ian. It was very moving, and I'm looking forward to part two. 
Rebecca, thank you so much for letting us accompany you to your first day in your new job and many congratulations on the post. Thanks to everybody who commented and shared the episode. Really, really grateful for you listening. So grateful, in fact, that I've had some people soup bookmarks made on recycled paper, of course. And, well, I say recycled paper. It's actually a recycled card. If you would like a couple for your own use or to share with family and friends, please just drop me a message on social media with your address, wherever you are in the world, and I'll post a couple to you. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us reach more people with stuff that could be useful. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my conversation with Ian Tyndall. Ian, I want to invite you to, to think about your vast array of research. Think about... Are there a couple of things you might pick out that might be of particular interest to our our pea supers? So anything to do with how we show up as humans at work? Anything around that that might be cool to share? Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation, Russ. Um, there's quite a number of, of things I'm working on at the moment. One research strand I uh, work closely with Daniel Waldeck, but also with our colleagues in Italy, like Paolo Riva and Luca Pichani, and so on, is in ostracism, which is social exclusion. So ostracism is something that we experience on very regularly, often on a daily basis. So it's when we're excluded, but we don't know why. So it's slightly different to receiving maybe prejudice or sexism, where you're fairly sure mm. you're excluded because you're a woman or because you're a person of a different racial skin color. And then you can kind of figure it out, even though it's very unpleasant. Well, ostracism and social exclusion, you may be being left out of, of a party invitation or you're the only one at work that hasn't been invited to a wedding like and, and, and so on. It, but you're not given a reason why. So it, it hurts. And um, we have this very strong need to belong. We've got this strong need, need for control um, as well. And we need to re-fortify some of those needs. So in terms of ostracism in the, in the, the workplace, it's something that has been researched quite a bit in in, in, in Austin because that's where a lot of ostracism occurs mm-hmm. occurs within families for sure and friendship groups but a lot of it occurs in the workplace and it leaves people fairly be- bewildered and confused and it, and it changes their identity with that organisation mm-hmm. and so on so, um, we conducted some um, qualitative research quite a number of years ago with Daniel during Daniel's PhD um, and where he um, interviewed it was around about 20 people a lot of them were in, in the workplace there were, there, there were staff from a number of different businesses and organisations a lot of them were really high up in those organisations, um, executive and so on. But they, when we were uh, asking them about the Austin experience, it was like they're travelling back in time. Five years, four years, mm. ten years, and the tears are welling up, some with clenched fists. So it's almost like the intensity of the pain, the emotion is still there when they were excluded in the workplace, sometimes at home as well. So it says, that gave us, that was an eye-opener because we, some of the literature says it's quite a trivial thing. We all get excluded, just get over it really quickly. But when you're ostracized quite regularly over time, it tends to lead to a resignation stage, kind of a, a, a helplessness. And it can lead to other kind of maybe psychological distress. So we were interested in looking at, at um, positive psychology. So we looked at um, psychological capital and we looked at things like your resilience and your optimism. And we also looked at in combination with psychological flexibility, which is 
Um, as you were talking about earlier, uh, Rossets can be quite a, a long definition, but there are other ways of approaching it. Sure. So, so um, it's it's our ability to maybe a, a, approach um, situations by connecting with where our values and not be getting caught up in our thoughts and our feelings and not avoiding unpleasant experiences and emotions and engaging in some committed action towards where, where, where you want to go. Um, so we looked at psychological flexibility and psychological capital. So common sense would tell us that psychological capital is a positive resource to have. Mm. That you've high, if you're high in it, you've high resilience, you've high optimism, and it's a, it should act as a nice buffer against uh, an unpleasant, distressing experience like being socially excluded and ostracized. But what, what we found out, even though psychological capital was associated with, with um, the distress and ostracism, it didn't moderate it. It didn't have any real Im, uh, Im, impact, um, whether you're high or low in psychological, psychological capital in terms of how distressed you might be after mm. um, an experience of ostracism, whereas um, psychological flexibility was uh, a moderator. So it seems that if, if the effect of psychological flexibility over, overrode any uh, impact, potential impact from uh, psychological capital. So, there's some, so it's not just being positive about a situation helps you uh, overcome experience of ostracism. It doesn't really, in terms of mm. in terms of our, our research anyway, but being um, psychologically flexible high in it does seem to buffer you against the negative um, experience of psychological um, stress that comes from ostracism, uh, whether you're more stressed and more anxious and uh, more, more depressed and so on. So we found that if you're high in psychological, sorry, psychological flexibility, you will tend to bounce back or recover or refortify yourself a little bit and more from those um, unpleasant experiences. So we carried out a number of, of studies on narcissism, and we, we looked at what's called experiential avoidance and cognitive flexibility, sorry, so cognitive fusion within the psychological flexibility model. So experiential uh, avoidance is when we tend to avoid our inner selves, so we tend to avoid our unpleasant emotions, our unpleasant feelings, the thoughts that you, did, that you don't mm. want to have about yourself. And um, and it also involves some behavioral avoidance as well, actually just not going to an, to an event. So with experiential avoidance, it's important to, to realize it's not just your, your thoughts, it's how you act. So a person who might drink alcohol too much to avoid the unpleasant thoughts they have about themselves or an unpleasant memory to try and keep that below the surface. They, they might take um, drugs to try and dampen it. They might overeat. They might uh, take too much chocolate cake or crisps to, and so, to try and again suppress or, or those unpleasant thoughts. Mm. So it's not just trying to suppress your thoughts inside your mind. You can engage in, in actions. And you can also engage in actions, uh, more extreme ones, such as kind of self-harm. And then so on. Again, it's, it's all due to trying suppressing these thoughts that you don't really, really want to have. So I think from a psychological perspective, it's interesting that they're, they all look very different. One's an eating disorder type behavior, mm. one's a self-injury type behavior, and one's an addiction type of behavior. And yet, from, from the perspective of contextual behavioral science, they're probably functioning for the same purpose. So even though they look physically different, they look completely different, they actually could be clinically serving the same purpose of a um, person not willing to experience mm. maybe unpleasant emotions, feelings, memories, and thoughts, and so mm. on. And so that's something we looked at uh, with experiential avoidance in the context of ostracism. We also looked at cognitive fusion. So fusion is when you literally believe your negative thoughts to be true mm. uh, about yourself. You become fused. They, it defines you that you are worthless, that I am unworthy of, of love, and that literally these thoughts define you. It's almost like you're a sheep branded on your forehead with a, with a hot iron. That is you. Mm. So when we looked at cognitive fusion, people become fused with the thoughts like, I deserve this to be excluded, or... 
um, I'm un- un- unworthy of belonging to this group because mm-hmm. they've excluded me. So when people, um, when, when we interviewed these people, these were the kinds of things they were telling us. So it's not as if we were making these, these are the kinds of things they're telling us directly in the view. This is how they felt. So they became cognitively fused. And with it, so we thought that that would be a strong predictor, but we found in our analyses that experiential avoidance seemed to account for more. Um, so when people were kind of suppressing their their thoughts about the ostracism experience and suppressing their unpleasant feelings and stress, mm-hmm. that seemed to have um, an impact on them recovering from, from, from the experience over time. So again, it just showed us that there's something very positive uh, or very important about the psychological flexibility model particularly because we think we can have an influence on your psychological flexibility. We think we can change it mm. and we think we can enhance it. And there's plenty of research out there which suggests that, that we can, that it's a, it's a variable that can change and you can increase your levels of it or you can decrease your levels sure. depending on, 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 on the context. Mm. It's, it's just fascinating about ostracism because I think you were talking earlier about we don't, we put people in leadership positions, but we don't necessarily give them any support no. or... And I'm not just sort of training on how to use a particular form or or process, but support on what it's like being a leader. And it can be a very lonely place yeah, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And leaders can be ostracized themselves. Yeah, absolutely. By, the, by partly of the, the, maybe the unpopular decisions they make yeah, or yeah. just because people are maybe a bit jealous. And it can be quite... I always, I always reflect that leaders, leadership can be quite a lonely place. Yeah. Because some people... Are in such deference in a hierarchy, they think they think you're you're no longer human. You become sort of some sort of deity, or think they can't interact with yeah. you. When perhaps all I need to crave is some normal social interaction. Uh, absolutely, like, and, and people will probably react differently and treat a leader differently once they get promoted to the ranks and so on. Mm. But I think, as Miguel point, there should be always mentorship and supervision for leaders as well. There should be a place for them to go. Because they have to deal with a lot, a lot of line managing issues. They probably hear a lot of very unpleasant things. They might experience different arguments among, amongst, um, amongst their colleagues and somehow have to broker that. And, mm. and so on. They, but they need a place themselves to kind of level that and just to reflect on yeah. it all and see how it's affecting them. But I agree there's a lot of loneliness in leadership. And certainly you would see that with the leaders that you yeah. go and give your, your coaching sessions yeah. and, and so on. And I think, I think also this, it can be lonely and I love mentorship, but I love supervision. Yeah. I love the idea of leadership supervision mm-hmm. groups. I don't, I don't know if that thing, such a thing exists. I, I reckon you're going to have to put your name to it now, Ross. And oh, like, <laughs> <laughs> that could be a collaboration. <laughs> yeah, but, but leadership supervision yeah. groups, I guess there are collectives where leaders can get together. Like, yeah. I'm thinking, thinking of things like, off the top of my head, they think like the Institute of Directors. That could be a people, a place, a community. But yeah. I don't know if there's anything particularly around leadership. I'm sure the PCBs will tell me. I'm thinking of the Institute for Leadership and Management. Yeah. But just, just uh, maybe it's some sort of a more informal community of leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that probably is. It, it's not a new idea, but it just strikes me that I don't see it that often in, in organizations. With some of our other rosters and research, we're looking at um, so something called adaptability as, as well so adaptability seems to be in the education literature hmm. the many research with adolescents but they've also looked at some young adults as well so adaptability seems to have a cognitive component which you're thinking um, component your behavioral component and also your affective or emotional component so it seems your ability to adjust cognitively behaviorally and emotionally 
to setbacks in life, not the real traumas mm. that a person might, might experience, whether it's something physical or, or sexual or something horrible like that. But it's more just kind of the everyday kind of setbacks, like a bad, bad grade or failing your driving test or someone saying that they don't like your dress or they don't like a new haircut. How do you bounce back? So something adaptability, and that seems to be related to psychological flexibility. Is that something we're looking at? We're also looking at traditional personality traits, even though that wouldn't be tradition. It wouldn't be what contextual behavioral science would mm-hmm. normally be, be about. Certainly not what behavioral psychology. But it's not that we we would believe that the say the big five, which would be extroversion, how outgoing you are, and introversion, how kind of shy you are, mm-hmm. how agreeable you are versus how contrary you are, mm-hmm. um, how neurotic you are, how much do you worry versus a kind of kind of how calm and um, you are. And how open you are to experience or how close you are to experience so um you know how conscientious you are mm-hmm. versus the person who doesn't mind submitting things late or just letting people down so they're kind of big five we would no, wouldn't normally research those in in behavioral psychology but it's it's not that we believe that they represent anything per se in the brain so it's not as if we believe that you'd ever do a brain scan and find the area of the brain where pers- where neuroticism is and where conscientiousness mm. is or extroversion but they're just useful predictors over population so we're just looking at how that's related to psychological flexibility and and autism we find some very interesting effects of, of, of standard personality so i think it's something that we can merge contextual behavioral science with some other branches that we wouldn't traditionally have even though i I would say there's quite a, be a few, quite a few in the contextual behavioral science community which wouldn't see mm-hmm. the word bio. I think it is worth connecting with the wider psycho- psychological community. There's a lot as well to support to show the predictive validity of things mm-hmm. like personality and, and, and intelligence and so on. We're also looking at the effects of ostracism and sleep. So we've got research under review at the moment on, on that, seeing so how, you, how, you, how you respond to ostracism and does that affect your, your ability to fall asleep at night and, and your sleeping pattern over, over the course of night and how well you wow. wake up and so on. So there's quite a um, there's quite a lot going on in the autism. We've got we've got a lot going on at any moment in, in time, and um, Daniel Waldeck is is a great guy. He really um, comes up with some really nice and you know, ideas in that. So we, with Daniel, he's gone off and formed his own lab. But there's still ideas that we can we can send each other maybe a WhatsApp message or or just an email. Did you see this or well, what about this? Mm-hmm. And it's usually an anecdote or something we've seen uh, or a paper, and then we just the, the ideas uh, snowball from there. Yeah. We, we we'll generate a design. And work on that. So, um, there's lots of other things. Um, you mentioned earlier about um, Shane McLaughlin and this smart work. So, this is something that we're yeah. really excited about. And I mentioned earlier that we just had a paper accepted to the other day. So, SMART stands for Strengthening Mental Abilities Through Relational Training. Again, it could be one of those mouthfuls that you mentioned mm. earlier. But it's basically a program using basic behavioral principles on, on from relational frame theory where we teach. Um, people, it's often been done in children and adolescents, but it can be any age because um, Nan, Nanny Presti in Sicily is doing research on, on this with patients with Alzheimer's and finding some really, really fascinating results with there as well. So it's basically teaching you basic relations like same, same as, different, opposite, and more than or less than. Mm-hmm. So it seems simplistic, but a lot of the way that we approach the world is how we approach things relationally. So um, that the, you are you are a better coaching psychologist than, than me. Um, you, somebody earns more money than, than somebody else. Um, I am more depressed than you. And like we, 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 we think, if you analyze everyday language, we talk in relations nearly all, all, all mm. the time. So with relational frame theory, we think this is kind of a, a, a learned pattern of behavior. We call it a, a relational operant. Some operant psychology just simply means something you do that to the environment, then, then it'll increase the likelihood of you doing it again and maybe positively reinforced. 
and, mm. and enforced. So the more often you reinforce, the more the more likely to do it. Just becomes a learned pattern of behavior. So parents do uh, generally provide the reinforcement for children when they're learning these, these these relations. But we can train them within this particular program. So we use um, a program developed by Brian Roach uh, and Sarah Cassidy at the uh, National University of Ireland. And it's called Raise Your IQ. So they've got an online campus company based on their research. So we independently tested this um, research with Shane's PhD. Um, so I won uh, um, a bursary for that. And so Shane came over from Ireland to work with me on that. So it was, it was a really it was an exciting few years. So we, we conducted research in primary and secondary schools in Ireland. And we're hoping to do some research here in, in, in the UK, but the schools in Ireland were very receptive to it at that good time. So with this, so then, um, the students would generally undergo about two to three months of training, which is same as um, different or opposite and more than and less than. I mean, just usually we use nonsense words, words that have no particular meaning mm. beforehand. So, so you can't say it's because any results are due to people and having known what the words were already or having a different experience with the world with the words so they would, um, we just learn through a series of, of trainings that could get progressively more difficult over time and it records the number of responses you get right it's just trials learning same different more than less than a number of different trials and then what, what we do is we test their um, cognitive aptitudes so for their abilities tests um, some IQ tests like so in, in IQ is the intelligence quotient and um, we also looked at ed- education measures that are valued by teachers, such as reading scores and uh, mathematics scores. So what we found with the secondary school study that was just getting accepted for publication there in the Journal of Behavioral Education, it's um, that um, children perform better on what's a test of what's called fluid reasoning. So your fluid reasoning is your ability to think outside the box. Mm. And really, it's ability to solve puzzles. It's to think um, abstractly. It's to see connections between patterns um, patterns in particular sequences when you're looking at maybe a, a grid of about four or five images and you have to kind of figure out what one should come next to complete mm-hmm. the sequence um, so it's very useful for a lot of jobs like um, computer programming for, gra- for graphic design um, and for civil engineering mechanical engineering all those there's a lot of careers that depend on on, on having good, good levels of fluid reasoning um, so it's a bit different to your general knowledge, which we, which we would uh, call your crystallized intelligence, mm-hmm. just knowledge that you built up over time, and also your language skills and, and so on. So, and we found that the, the, the children in, in the secondary school, so they're between the ages of 12 to 14, who undertook the smart training program, um, had significantly higher fluid intelligence scores after the program versus the control group of, um, of teenagers who went along with the school curriculum as normal. So in their curriculum as normal, they were uh, undertaking what was called a sc- uh, scratch computer programming course. Um, uh, so this is something they'd be doing part of their IT classes mm-hmm. and you're just learning about programming. So when they, ha- when they had with the curriculum as normal, there was no increase in the fluid intelligence scores. But there were those children who were in the experimental group, which is the smart group, there was a significant increase in fluid intelligence um, over time. So it shows the promise of relational frame theory. So this mm-hmm. research program is directly um, comes from um, relational frame theory and, and work that we built on over a long n- number of years um, we've also done research with, with primary schools as well so it's not just secondary schools mm-hmm. so, and um, we've, we've uh, we, we research under review at the moment we've also found significant increases at that level so these were children who un- undertook smart research uh, so a smart program in, in their primary school versus other, other, other kids who were in a control group who um, just went, went ahead with a, an online chess game so yeah, the right. online chess game is what the schools had bought in anyway 
So it was what the schools were using mm. for that particular time. And again, we, we found that it also transferred over to their um, skills in, in reading and, and, so, and so on. So it, was, it wasn't just skills on an, on an abstract IQ test because plenty of people who wouldn't agree with the uh, IQ concept, even though it's got amazing predictive validity across populations, mm. like generally predicts the kind of career you have, the amount of money you might make in your career, maybe how long you live. There's lots of research on that. Yeah, and um, uh, even though many people might agree with the construct itself, and mm-hmm. um, we we find it's increasing that, and but importantly, the educational outcomes that teachers and parents really value in terms of the society, like your reading scores and your math scores. We need to do a lot more research, but these are the biggest studies today. But I think there's a lot more research coming down down the line on that particular smart program. So I think from a contextual behavioral science, that's one of the biggest successes by far of of. Um, of CBS. I know most people focus on acceptance commitment therapy, which is the biggest part of CBS, mm. but certainly um, the SMART program uh, and there are other programs like the PEAK program in, in, in the US developed by Mark Dixon and uh, followed up by people um, by, like Jordan Belisle. That's, that's quite exciting as well, looking at uh, relational frame theory specifically applied to autism, but within the education system. But for, from our perspective, the SMART uh, program seems to be one of the it's got the, one of the strongest potentials within contextual behavioral science for affecting positive change in society. Mm-hmm. Because if we can see that children's scores on things like reading and, and maths in, in, increase out there in the SMART program, then that's something that we can control and that we can, we can help TM teachers. We, 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 can, we can teach them ways of en- enhancing people's scores so that they don't necessarily have to come out with the grade that was predicted at the beginning. So if, if a child comes in, that, that child will only ever be a C student or um, a D student, mm-hmm. and which um, these, these children can potentially increase their, their potential grades they might get, which will lead to hopefully better outcomes from them down, down mm-hmm. the line in terms of maybe the career options that might be available to them or university degree, university degrees that might be accessible to them with a certain grade, grade band and so on. So we're hoping to... It's all about increasing the, um, the positive opportunities mm-hmm. for people in life and um, so because most cognitive training programs don't particularly work so there's a lot of uh, advertised ones that you can get on your smartphone apps and like suppose you train your brain and so mm-hmm. on and there's a lot of those actually don't do where you get better at the game but it doesn't increase your memory yeah. it doesn't increase your your ability to do maths it doesn't increase your ability to read to read better have a higher reading age Whereas this this program has potential, there's a long way to go. There's always flaws with every every mm. study, but I think with some maybe big randomized controlled trials coming down the line, I think we will genuinely see um, the, the positive effects of our smart program. Blimey, that that sounds massive. It's a lot of work. You wouldn't something. It's a kind of type of study you wouldn't go in um, light light heartedly. You have mm. to put control a, a lot of work, a lot because a lot of interventions within the cognitive domain are very short dimension. Uh, mm. Sorry, interventions. They might be five-minute memory training mm. types. That's not going to have a lasting impact, really, in, in, mm. in the long run. This this is intensive behavioral training over a, a long period of time. But mm. once you have the basics in, then you can generalize it to other mm. settings, potentially. I'm I'm already thinking how this could be applied in in organisations because I think if we've got something that that can enhance fluid fluid intelligence. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, careers that, especially now, that a lot of our jobs are very computer-based or IT-based mm. somehow. That the, the, the lot that just relies on on your ability 
think about um, logically and think mm-hmm. in sequences and in patterns and and so on. I think that's something that the smart program definitely applied for. And mm-hmm. as I said earlier, it's not just um, for children and adolescents. It's it's it, we we're seeing it with all older age. We've also just some promising. In fact, just a very small scale study with um, Sarah Cassidy in Ireland, where we we looked at uh, a group who who have um, reading challenges that are adults who've managed to kind of navigate life with never learning to read. Mm. So they're still successful in their own areas, but they managed to kind of avoid any situation where they might have to read or show that they can't write. So they they find it very difficult to write or to read. And so we've given them <clears> a smart program and find some increases. It's not perfect uh, by, by any means, but it shows there it there was an increase in that versus what's considered the standard mm. in, in intervention. So I think there's something very generative about relational frame theory that if you mm-hmm. use it creatively and think about it, it's, it's possible to develop interventions that can make life better for some for some people. In mm-hmm. in, and in in and it's kind of limitless really in terms of the domains that you can apply it to. It just really depends on the creativity of of, of the people mm-hmm. willing to put this in, in into play. Wow. And I think you're right that there's this sense you're giving me of collaboration with different cultures and people from different countries but also across psychological disciplines, but other disciplines. I think the more we do that, the richer our research can get. Oh, absolutely, because we were trying to get in contact with a lot more ed- 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 education, not just mm. educational psychologists, but education people who are um, lots of um, teachers and uh, administrators and children, because a lot of the interventions like um, grit, grit programs don't tend to um, to work. Let me look at the most recent meta-analyses. They don't fare very well in that so the uh, cognitive training problems and grit problems and and so on um learning styles doesn't fare well at all like in terms of whether you're a visual learner or whether you mm-hmm. uh, learn verbally that mm-hmm. doesn't stand up to to um, scientific scrutiny generally speaking mm-hmm. um, so, so sense so learning styles is is nearly kaput we would hope so but i, I was at a conference an educational psychology conference two years ago when there was four presentations on learning styles alone so people still firmly believe and just passionately believe it, it must be true so they might have some anecdotal evidence that one child in a classroom that learns visually mm-hmm. and therefore it must be true but it's very difficult yeah. to, to stand up certainly when you conduct analysis of a large number of studies over a period of time put them all together and see is there a genuine effect or phenomenon there really so we're sort of research where we looked at body eating um Conditions with uh, Emily Sandoz and uh, Michael Bordieri in in the University or University of, of Louisiana and and, and Murray State uh, University, they're really uh, really good people. So these are people that I really do value. Um, we're working with um, work with um, looking people like in Yes Trindad and in in Portugal and Solomon Kurtz as well in in the US, and we're just looking at the, the various measures within. Um, contextual behavioral science and sentence and treatment therapy and just getting a sense that they really do measure what mm. they're supposed to measure because I think that will enhance um, the, the credibility of CBS going forward like the better measures that we have we can be sure that our interventions are genuinely working by the mechanism by which we think they are mm-hmm. whether it's reducing cognitive diffusion um, um, so it's whether it's reducing cognitive diffusion increasing diffusion increasing acceptance and decreasing experiential avoidance reducing uncommitted kind of action or action and helping mm. people trying to identify what their values are and being, come, being increasingly mindful and probably identifying less with their self-story and narrative mm. that they've been telling them over over a long period of time. So I think that's something that we're, we're actively trying to do at the moment, just getting better. So I think, I think this, the, the discipline is developing 
a lot, but I think there's a lot of really positive in, in, in interventions. Um, there is there's so many variations of act. There probably is no one act anymore because mm-hmm. there's lots of different people around the world doing their own slight version yeah. of applying it differently with with their clients, and, that, and that's fine as well. There's a lot of different measures, but but I suppose we have to take stock and make sure we're not doing. For example, if you think of just something about Mary. Uh, we're not doing doing seven minute abs. If you think of, of, of that scene with, with, with Ted, and when yeah. he takes on the hitchhiker, and he says, "Have you ever heard of eight, eight minute abs?" and then and then Ted says, "Sure." And then he says, "I got this great idea, seven minute abs," and then explains why it's amazing. And then Ted goes, "But what about six minute abs?" And then the hitchhiker goes crazy. Said that's crazy. No one's ever heard of six minute abs. <laughs> but that can be within terms of contextual behavioral science. We have to be wary of. Developing so many variations that we're competing mm. with each other to have the, the 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 best or the newest one or the, or the coolest version of it. We just have to make sure that it, it works. Mm. That we have something that is quite consistent. Taking individual differences into account, individual clients, mm. and for teenagers, for uh, uh, adults with with specific psychological conditions or particular mm. maybe particular disorders or uh, and so on and all, all other parts. But taking all of that into account. Just making sure what works, uh, mm. I, I think, is best to try and get some evidence. Mm. But I think we're getting much better with the evidence base as well. And mm. I think it's a, it's a really positive community overall. There's people willing to do a lot of work and do very, very willing and generous to share their resources mm. and materials. I think that's something very, I think it's something very positive. I think it's something very generative. I said it earlier, mm-hmm. contextual behavioral science does a lot of uh, ways of making life better for people using these basic sets of principles. And, and so on. So, I think with contextual behavioral science as well, it just reminds me when we say why, why does the word context, why mm-hmm. why is it important? I think it's because we're always talking about maybe a stimuli that you approach and stimuli avoid. And we talk about the matrix, I think, yeah. and what we go towards in a way. But there's a lot of things in life that we're, we don't we approach differently in different contexts, and people say, well, that's kind of a it doesn't doesn't that's unfalse unfalsifiable in a way. Mm. If you say that, well, then you can never do an experiment or a test just to say it's been proven or disproven or it's false or it's or it's true. But it just kind of reminds me of say the, if you think of the film, um, if you think of, of Rocky Dennis in in in, uh, in the film Mask with um, and Cher played he played Rusty Dennis as his, his mother, and you think mm. of his his kind of famous poem from that. When he talks about the sun shining on his face in mm. his poem, in, in, in one in one instance, it's it's something these things are good, the sun shining in my face, and then in another instance, these things are bad. And he mentions the sun shining in my face again, mm. and I think that captures some of the essence of what contextual behavioral science for me is about. That that you really do have to take the the context and the function of the behavior in, 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 in into account. Peacekeepers, only me. Just wanted to insert the poem right here from the film The Mask. These things are good, ice cream and cake, a ride on a Harley, seeing monkeys on a tree, the rain on my tongue, and the sun shining on my face. These things are a drag, dust in my hair, holes in my shoes, no money in my pocket, and the sun shining on my face. Right, let's go back to Ian. So if we're developing all these other ways of doing psychological flexibility, we have to be ensuring that we're still functionally analyzing the behavior of the person that's right there in front of you mm-hmm. and understanding their context and environment and why they're behaving or why they're suffering mm-hmm. in that particular um, context rather than focusing maybe too much on the aspects of 
of, of psychological flexibility. Mm. And also with, with psychological flexibility that we don't make it all about the person. We have to take the person's context into account. Absolutely. So it, we, we just so we don't go down the risk of running the way resilience research has been hijacked, kind of, in my view, over the years and, and saying that the problem is with you and it's because you're not resilient enough and you have to build up your resilience and then you'll be able to tolerate all the things that maybe work demands of, of you. It's not that all resilience problems are like that, but I've seen too many go down the, the, that path. It's almost like the, the, the organizations can... can um, shift away any kind of blame from that mm. there's some blame maybe the wrong word but they can change themselves they can change their, their reinforcing contingencies and, and their values mm. and their practices so it's not always on just a person maybe suffering a bit of work because they're not resilient enough and it just make would also make sure that we don't go down that route with, with psychological flexibility research that it's definitely important and we can help a person with their emotional reactivity and behavioural reactivity to events I think that's one of the real values mm. of psychological flexibility and helping identify their values going 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 forward mm. in the way that we always did with say humanism and with mm. Viktor Frankl and Carl Rogers and so yeah. on once you can identify that then you can over help override some of the the bad things that are going to naturally happen in life mm. and, and the ups and downs but just in, so we can increase psychological flexibility that will help you but also trying to see how we can affect the person's context uh, as mm. well and identify what can might need to be changed there to help them continue with the ways and can be committed and and so on. I so so agree about the, yeah. the context point because there's no point bringing in a, a company introducing whatever you might call some act-based training. You might call it personal resilience yeah. training if there's a toxic environment because yeah. it could it could support the person, but it's not going to change the environment yeah. necessarily. Yeah. And in fact, it's interesting. The word resilience is is becoming much less much less common. The NHS is saying don't use the word resilience. Because yeah, it's kind of a buzzword. It's reducing. The size because of it's viewed very cynically, and I think possibly rightly, that, oh, so you expect me to, rather than doing the jobs of two people, I'm going to do the jobs of four people. Yeah. And you're just going to expect me to keep going whilst not giving me a pay rise right. and giving me policies, etc., that, that, that don't respect or, or benefit me. So... Yeah, I can see that. Um, Stephen Riker in, in, in Scotland uh, put up a kind of a nice tweet that encapsulated that. So they were out um, campaigning and they were on strike about mm. for better pay, better pensions and so on. And then beside them was designed for employee well-being and resilience training and, and work and so on. So, and he was saying, if you could just address these things, people do need security. Like, so the society has a huge impact. If people are on kind of zero-hour contracts or they're on temporary contracts, they can't get things like more mortgages. They don't know if they'll be able to support their, their families. They don't know where, where they'll be able to pay for food and so on. So we, it's going back to, to, to Abraham Maslow, even though people might not necessarily agree with the pyramid mm. that before, that, and I used to talk about, but you still need your basic needs met of food and shelter and mm. and security and job security because there's very few jobs for life now it's a very different type of um, yeah. environment and it's quite easy to talk about purpose in your life and um, doing a job that you value or find mm. meaning in but it's very difficult to do that if you don't have the basics in front of you. Mm. so quite a big leap and a bit of risk you might need to have support maybe be able to move back into your parents house in your 30s and 40s or something you might even want to do that some people might not have that option mm. um, and so on so it's very difficult like if you think for uh, I met a really in- interesting guy in Jerusalem I was at a conference there in, in Palestine and he was an in- English guy who had his own company in London and he took in over a million pounds um, profit every year for himself and he said that it just wasn't fulfilling for him and um, so he, he left that and then so he took up a job with World Vision with helping people in some very tough communities in, 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 in Palestine and Israel 
and he said he's never happy. He's only earning twenty one thousand um, a year, and Diamond um, said, but he's never happy. He's found his, his new purpose. Mm. He says, I, I don't miss it at all. But then his wife said she does. She says right. she, she just piped up. She, she missed the, the shopping and the cruises and, mm. and stuff. So, but. Be, it was amazing that he did that, but again, he was in a position to be able to do mm. that by having so much financial security and be able to go in for a much reduced thing. So yeah. I, I do, I, I do think if you, it's difficult to be focusing solely on the purpose and meaning of life if you don't have the basics sure. um, of support. If you don't have financial security, it's, it's quite difficult. But you can you take a leap. Lots of people are going to have to take a leap mm. anyway, but it's difficult to focus. And once you got that security, then you can talk about the higher order mm. things like. Finding your purpose and your meaning, what it is that you value that's, in life, and what, what you want to do. That's so true. Because I'm conscious that the program I've developed with Paul Flaxman is is for the workplace and it assumes a certain level of educational attainment, a certain yeah. vocabulary, and it's not for everyone in the workplace. And I'm really looking to how we can adapt it to to cover everyone in the workplace, and and, and hopefully try and speak to everyone in the workplace. Yeah. Because you're right, if, if I'm going in and talking about what's important to you, what has meaning, if someone's, like you say, on something like a zero hours yeah. contract, they're going to say, naff off, mate. Yeah. They're going to say, I need, my meaning is I need to keep my hours up. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's, uh, not sure what the word I'm looking for, it's a, it's a risky, it's, it's, it's not stable for me. Yeah. I think it's really important because it reminds me of probably of, probably the toughest data set I've, I've ever had to analyze. So mm. you've got this idea in psychology that qualitative research is soft and quantitative research is the hard, that's mm. the real science. But I probably would have followed that line a bit myself as an undergrad. But the toughest analysis I've ever been involved in is a study we looked at in, in Italy where we uh, analyzed 71-hour interviews with homeless people on the streets of Milan. And that was harrowing. To go to, to go through to go through their just their stories, mm. and to realize it could happen to anyone. Um, a lot of people were um, some were some were bankers, some were teachers, and plenty were married. Okay, sure, you can always. It's very easy to say, well, they became an alcoholic or a drug addict, or they were a gambler and blew it mm. all. But um, that's only with something. But for a lot of them, it's just life events just happened and mm. spiraled out of control, and they ended up on on the streets. It can happen to anyone. But it was a good, real sense of looking to so. Not everyone went into despair. Their sense of self fell apart. Like I said, I used to be a banker. Or I used to drive a really fast car. Or mm. I used to have all these girlfriends and uh, really good-looking girlfriends. Now I, I'm living on, on, on the street. But mm. for, for a lot of them, there was a real sense of, I'm going to beat this. I, I am myself. I still have my sense of self. And they wanted to keep that sense of dignity. And they wanted to get it back. And it was really tenacious. Mm. And I think it was nasty to get back. This is not going to define them for us. I like, this is not going to be it. For the rest of life until they die, they're going to get back somehow into in, in, into quote unquote to say normal society and living mm. back in in, in 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 physical homes again. So, but that was that was tough. But I just mm. remind you what, what you're talking about there. But when you get down to what to what can happen to anyone mm. if it, with with these kinds of things like zero hour contracts, like, mm. it's very easy to talk about well well being, and but not not the person has no basic yeah. Um, yeah. security. Like it's very. Really, really, really stressful. Wow, it, it comes back to, to what you were talking about at the beginning. These these decisions that yeah. can be these choices we make, whether to go to an interview yeah, yeah, or to not, not. Yeah. and then and the uh, element of luck involved that that can that can change our life circumstances. You know, oh, absolutely, yeah. 
Ian, I'm going to start to bring this to a close. Any other research that you think might be of interest to P-Supers? Yeah, something that's a really big project that we're working on at the moment here at the University of Chichester. Um, we're working with a partnerships and with colleagues in Belgium and Holland, and there was a French uh, partner as well. So it's called the Two Seas area. So it's, we're talking about East Sussex, where um, Kent and Essex, and also the um, the parts of Belgium and, and Holland that are along mm. the coast. Um, so it's it's called um, sexual health in the over forty fives, and it's a big European in interreg project in around four million euro across all parts. So it's mm. quite it's quite involved over a period of three years. And so I'm working on that with my colleagues Tess Hartland, um, Ruth Lowry, um, Motri Banerjee, and um, Antonina uh, Pereira. And so we're, um, the problem is based on really the European Union's concern that the, by far the largest rate of increase in sexually transmitted infections is in the over 45s. Mm. And it could be due to various reasons. Um, oftentimes when people separate or become divorced and get new, new partners and mm. so on, and then they don't think about their own sexual health care and they don't think... Um, about maybe perhaps using condoms or mm. so on because they think that maybe the past in menopause or something that they think is not relevant there's maybe there's no danger getting pregnant so therefore mm. they don't need pr- uh, protection and care for themselves and don't think about infections and also because they think that the they think that that's for younger people that's all for, for them so we find that's the biggest increase in England and mm. uh, certainly south of England and, and in, in Belgium Holland and northern France so we're working together um, to reach these people so we're reaching people uh, who are over 45 we're also um, reaching the LGBT community mm. um, and we're also um, targeting um, sexual health, health workers and migrant workers so to people who p- typically don't access um, services and sexual health services mm. because they think it's not for them or they don't want to be recorded somehow um, so we're, we're um, examining a, a model to try, and sorry, we're developing and then we're going to be evaluating a model to engage these people so um, to become more aware of, of and take care of their sexual health and also to train the trainers, to train the people who are mm. going to be reaching these people. So the very special people in the community and certain centres who these people might necessarily come to standard clinics mm. uh, and so on, but we might be able to, to come to specific people in the community who have training to, to reach uh, them and to help them with, with, with their, their sexual health. So that's something that it's ongoing and it's, it's a big project, but that takes a lot of our time at the moment, wow. but it's, it's quite exciting. So it's called the, the Shift Project um, to two C's area. Yeah. And it's an interreg project. So and wow. uh, something that we're really excited about. Don't it's phenomenal to hear about the breadth of the yeah. impact of the research that you're involved in. Yeah, it's, it is very wise. We're hoping it's something the model, not just for the parts of Europe but for all, all, all of Europe and again it just it just reiterates the point of what I was saying earlier but the value of mm. international collaboration and work very much the same people mm. in different countries with the same issues yeah. same concerns yeah. and same health issues affect us all and so mm. we work well together and I think something we should encourage collaborations mm. internationally again, rather than closing doors and closing borders mm. and saying that it's us versus them I just don't yeah. think that's helpful for a way for humanity going forward Now, Ian, I like to ask I like to ask my my guests for a takeaway. Is, is there anything uh, a, a top piece of advice or technique or quote or anything that you think you'd recommend to people heed in the workplace? Is there anything you might be able to offer on that front? Um, really, to be compassionate to each other and realise that we're all in this community together. Mm. in that you won't, can't get on with everyone but you'll just be 
conscious to what other people are going through because you'd be going through something you're similar yourself at, mm-hmm. at some point. Um, but being psychologically flexible allows you that if you can just kind of step back and detach a bit from the strong emotions and feelings that you might be feeling and not to react as much in, in anger. But it's not to accept if bad things are wrong and come work, or if you're being mm. unfairly treated or being, being, uh, if someone is picking on you or someone is ostracizing you. It's not that you have to accept the bad things happening. Mm. You can accept the, the environment, but you will... Todd Cashton, I think, is, and his colleagues have got this really nicely in a paper that they have under review at the moment. Um, and he's talking about it's the harnessing a- a- aspect of it, that you harness the kind of the, some of these negative experiences and you can do that in your workplace and you can thrive and use it to thrive and flourish from then on mm. so if you're talking about nourishing and flourishing within with as a piece soup as a, we're looking for there is something about your body keeps a score if you think of Babanda Kok and the family mm. oh, 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 over time your, your body does count up those re- reinforcements and mm. punishment experiences you experience oh, 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 over your life mm. but if, if you can kind of harness this um, uh, uh, kind of your ability to overcome some of these mm. negative experiences in, in life and still trying to identify your values and trying to reduce your experiential avoidance when, when it's not helpful for you, trying to reduce your cognitive fusion and become a little more distant from your thoughts as absolutely mm. defining in you, loosening your own self story um, a little bit. So, and realizing we can all be hypocrites at times, like I admit, I'm a I can be a hypocrite plenty, plenty mm. of times and just take ourselves a little bit more lightly because that's a message that mm. comes out from CBS but a lot of leaders in CBS don't take themselves too lightly either it's something that's a difficult mm. thing it's an ongoing thing you have to live and challenge every day mm. so it's not a point that you ever reach say I'm now psychological flexibility oh, sorry not psychologically flexible it's, mm. a, it's a kind of a target you're always trying to get yeah. towards but somewhere that you will never reach um, as, uh, as such but it's something they have to kind of li- live by and it's agreed um, and, um, and just that we can change as well in the workplace that we can we have these interventions that can make things better and if you use some basic behavioural training and also people get confused about the environment I think because we they think about environment as being the clouds and sky and the trees and cars mm. and the buildings it's probably the most important thing in the environment are the people most specifically what do people say to you mm. whether they say I hate you or I love you or I'm, I'm disappointed in, in, in you mm. um, uh, you've been a real letdown or something um, I really don't like that new hair, hairstyle. Those kind of things. It's those things build up over, over, over time. So the environment is other people, specifically mm-hmm. you know, how, how they how they affect us and how we, we react to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but just saying that there were, there are things that if you could try and find what you value and work in, if you're in that position too, if you've got a bit of secure kind of base to work with, then trying to identify those values and those qualities of life that you want to live by and be known by. I think that mm-hmm. can, can be very useful and commit to that that action. And there'll be lots, lots of times where you just don't feel like it. Mm. You won't feel like committing that day. But if, if you do that, I think then that will bring some more well-being in the, in the workplace. Mm. And having a, a sense of curiosity, I think, is helpful. Like, like that's, what, that's what drives me most of my research, is just mm. I want to find out pretty much everything I can, but I don't have only one life and only small mm. research areas can realistically look at. But I'm genuinely curious and, uh, about what, uh, what affects people and um, how similar and how different we all are. Mm. And that's something that... Um, if if you try to open yourself to to, to the mm. world and, and be and be happy with it, and, and just be kinder to other people and be aware of other people's kind of suffering, those above you, as well as those those below, nice. below yeah. you, but not at the expense of just accepting being treated really badly. Mm. Like that's something that people in the workplace probably can accept a little bit too much. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you so much for that. I think it's really 
really powerful the way you describe it. And I'd just like to thank you for coming on the podcast, for willing to be a guest. I found you to be a real inspirational storyteller and a role model for, for me and a role model for us all. But hearing about your collaboration, your research, the impact of your research is, is breathtaking. It's truly phenomenal. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much for having me, Ross, and for the really, really kind words. I'm not sure I deserve them, but, but it's something that I've really enjoyed your podcast series, and I found something really lovely take-home messages and a lot of um, points that made me just stop and think, okay, mm. what does that mean for, for my life? So I think that you're doing great work with, with, with this podcast, and you're making the world a better place by the kind of work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I think we might have a hog now, these supers, but thank, thanks again. Ian. We'll Brilliant. be dancing like yourself and Nick. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. you. Thanks. Pea supers, that's it. In the bag. I'd like to thank Ian once more for being a great human, a phenomenal researcher and storyteller. I'd like to add one other article, which we didn't discuss in the episode. It's a piece that's had quite an impact on my life. I reread it about once a month as part of my own grieving process. It's called Lessons from My Mother, Psychological Flexibility and the State of Grace. Ian begins the article, My mother died in April 2016, after the most courageous two-and-a-half-year battle with cancer. She was just 59. Travelling that journey with her taught me more about the acceptance and commitment therapy model of human suffering than all of the articles and books I have read and the conference presentations and workshops I have attended over the years. Towards the end of the article, Ian reflects. As Carl Sagan said, we should engage in kindness to each other and cherish the planet. This is very true but we should not forget to cherish those who love us. Despite having possibly hundreds or even thousands of friends or followers on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, there are only a handful of people in our lives who love us unconditionally and whose lives are devastated or seemingly ruined when we die. Cherish them. I'll leave you with that thought from Ian and I'll put a link to the full article in the show notes. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or review are also really, really appreciated. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I've had some lovely people soup bookmarks printed. If you'd like to get your hands on a couple, just send me your address wherever you are in the world and I'll pop them in the post. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk. And this includes links to a few different platforms. You can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, we are at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to you for listening. Have a great week, pea soupers, and bye for now. Phenomenal, man. It's probably just way, way more research I could put. Could yeah, talk about. but but um, hey, man, I'm just along the coast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that's yeah. real. That's so kind of you, and it's really, it's really powerful what you've shared. There. Okay, thanks a little bit. You're such that. a good storyteller. <laughs>